This is an ABC podcast. On an evening in August 1926, a petite young woman named Alice Anderson set off with a friend to drive a car, a baby Austin, all the way from Melbourne to Alice Springs. Alice was wearing driving leathers from head to thigh, with cap and goggles covering her short, curly brown hair. She was already well known in the city as the founder of Miss Anderson's Motor Service, an all-woman motor garage, the only one of its kind in Australia. Like most of Miss Anderson's ventures, the drive to Alice Springs was a daring success. But only a few weeks later, back in her beloved Q Garage in Melbourne, Alice met a violent and mysterious end. Loretta Smith tells the story of Alice in A Spanner in the Works, the extraordinary story of Alice Anderson and Australia's first all-girl garage. Hi, Loretta. Hello, Sarah. How did you first hear about the story of Alice Anderson? Well, it was in a, in a book about Edna Walling, the, the famous Australian gardener. So Sarah Hardy wrote the biography, The Unusual Life of Edna Walling, and Edna was around the same age as Alice and uh, the same class. And so uh, she just turns up as a little cameo piece that really caught my attention. She turns up at a party and she's in this big car and uh, she's just opened up this garage and put a lot of debt into it. And she's this petite little thing and driving leathers. And uh, yes, it just caught my imagination. And uh, when I Googled her, this is way back in 2008, there was hardly anything there about her and I thought, why don't I know about this person? Why don't we know about this person? This is amazing. And then there was a personal connection that just appeared. What happened? Look, 2008 was a very interesting year for me. It was only a few months after that. I happened to be working as a case manager, community aged care package case manager in the city of Burundara. Uh, and uh, I, my job was to help elderly people stay in their homes for as long as possible and I'd make sure they had the right services and supports and I would go around and visit them regularly, particularly the ones with extra needs. And one of my clients was this dear woman called Mary and she lived in Camberwell and uh, she had Alzheimer's and so every time I turned up at the door I was just like this new person she never remembered my name but I had my little black and silver schnauzer mini schnauzer Dexter that I would take to clients who you know couldn't have pets anymore that you know he was a therapy dog basically and she always remembered Dexter which I always found quite amusing but Anyway, like a lot of people with dementia, she she um, talked a lot about the past and uh, was very forgetful about the present. And we were in her kitchen one day and I was checking that she had the right medications and she had food in her fridge and all of those things. And she just said out of nowhere, my mother was the driver and the mechanic in the family because she worked for Alice Anderson. <laughs> and I just thought, what is going on here? <laughs> You know, I think Alice is giving me a little message here to keep digging and find out what's going on. And then uh, just a few weeks after that, I ended up tripping over Dexter's lead and landing on the concrete and grazing my knee and thinking, oh, I've just had a little trip. But I realised not long after that that I had a very sore back and I'd actually um, had a fracture in my spine um, because I've got a rare genetic bone condition called osteogenesis imperfecta and that's what happens to your bones. They're, They're fragile and they tend to bend and break and you 
joints dislocate. And so it wasn't a serious break, but it meant that I had to take um, time out from my work, uh, which ended up being three months. And I started digging further into Alice Anderson and I'd always been eligible for the disability pension and I thought, I don't want to go back to my job. I want to just keep exploring Alice and so that's what I did. So this Mary, the elderly Mary that you were looking yes. after, could she tell you much about Alice? Did she have any memory of, of she, her as she a person? She did, she did. And and I'd just have to mention Alice Anderson and she'd say, oh, I adored Miss Anderson and I'd get a little bit more of a story. It was always consistent. And even after I'd left my job, um, I got permission from the family to keep interviewing her and she eventually went into care and she, she died not long after, just short of her 90th birthday. But she'd always tell me a little bit more and, and really she was the closest person I ever got to Alice, the fact that she knew Alice. And um, her mother used to take her to the garage when she first started working there because they didn't have kindergartens in those days. They were just sort of starting to establish those kinds of things. So she initially didn't have anywhere to take Mary for, for care. So um, four-year-old Mary would turn up and she'd be asking Alice all sorts of questions while Alice is under the car trying to work and her mother <laughs> Would Nancy would say, look, you know, stop interrupting Miss Anderson. She's a very busy woman. She's got a lot of work to do. And Miss Anderson didn't mind at all. She got on very well with everybody, including children. <laughs> but the exciting thing was for her and for me was that she got to sit in the back of the car sometimes when Alice um, chauffeured and took people around. Alice was born in Melbourne. How was her family doing financially when she arrived? They were doing very well. She was born in Malvern in the eastern suburbs of Victoria, Melbourne. And, uh, yes, they had a governess and a nanny and a cook. And so they were of that upper middle class part of society. And, uh, yeah, she, she was uh, grew up in a very well-to-do family. What business was her father involved he, in? He was an engineer. Uh, he was a brilliant engineer and uh, he actually uh, lectured at Melbourne University and one of his students was John Monash. And so he helped John Monash uh, get his engineering degree and then they went into business together. JT, as he was known, um, mm. Alice's dad, he moved the family to New Zealand and then to England and then they came back to Australia. Mm. How did Alice's mother hurt herself on the voyage back by that stage, she'd had uh, six children and uh, she was around 13 stone. And so she was, uh, yeah, they were on the boat coming back, on the ship coming back, I should say, and she decided to, someone was talking to her about dancing and she was a very lively woman and she decided to... Um, do an example of the Highland Fling, and as she did, <laughs> the, the ship kind of lurched and she collapsed and um, tore her Achilles tendon, which in those days they couldn't fix. So that was a serious injury, really, she carried for the rest of her life. She was lame for the rest of her life. Beware of the Highland Fling, done at sea. It's <laughs> the lesson from this tale. So what state were the family fortunes in when they arrived back in Australia? Oh, they had almost nothing. They lost, lost everything. almost everything because JT, as brilliant as he was, and John Monash even said he was more intellectually brilliant than he thought he was, um, Obviously, John Monash was pretty brilliant, but he was more of a steady-as-you-go man, whereas um, JT was full of ideas and imagination and, you know, 
big dreams and he invested in gold mines that collapsed and he had all sorts of businesses that fell apart and he was a terrible manager of money, um, which John Monash realised fairly early and he took the reins in that respect. But they went back to the mother country. Both parents were from Northern Ireland and so they went back to Ireland and England where some of the relatives were and he thought coming from the colonies and having built a lot of the or surveyed a lot of the roads and built a lot of the bridges that he would uh, come back and to the mother country and just fall into work but he was actually offered work for his for his last um em- employer but he fought with them um and ended up having a falling out and so uh, there was no job there and his expectations were very high but he didn't get on very well with um his equals. So, yes, they ended up having to come back after spending a lot of money over there trying to establish themselves, and so they came back to relative poverty. Where did they live when they arrived back in Australia? Well, um, when JT first came to Australia, he he did the gentlemanly thing and and bought some property in country Victoria, which was in Narbathong. Uh, in the Yarra Valley, not that far from Healesville. And he built a very rough summer cottage there. He and his his uh, younger brother Jack and John Monash and other friends would go up there on weekends and they'd chop down the local trees and, and they built this very rough cottage that was their summer cottage and it was for holidays only, but that's the only place they had to live when they returned. How did Alice take to living out in the bush? Oh, she loved it. She was a real tomboy and uh, you couldn't get her in side even for meals she'd be late uh she loved you know running up trees and and running through the bush and she learned how to uh you know ride horses she was a very good horsewoman in the end or, or horse girl uh she learned how to shoot and to fish and yeah she she just loved being outdoors even if she was reading a book it was up a tree <laughs> <laughs> did she go to the local school she did go to the local um, half-time state school uh, because they were uh, in a fairly remote area. Half-time meant that um, there was one teacher for two schools that were a few miles apart, and so they would um, the teacher would be three days one week and two days the next, and so they kind of got five days within a fortnight. And so um, the, the teachers weren't particularly good because no teacher wanted to go that far out and have to traverse those miles and they ended up having to stay with one of the families uh, uh, locally so they were either very young teachers or teachers about to retire so uh, it wasn't the best education but um, yeah uh, whatever Alice did she she exceeded at so. One night I think when she just turned 15 or so there was a frantic knocking at the cottage door what had happened? What had happened was, and it was a very, uh, it was very dark and very wet and cold, and there was this frantic knocking at the door, and um, there was a rather drunk um, man there, a woodcutter, because there were a lot of woodcutters in the area because it was covered in forest, uh, and he was desperately in need of. He wanted to use the telephone, and they did have a telephone, but it was out of order. But even if he'd rung, um, the doctor that they needed would have come far too late. And what had happened is one of the woodcutters had had some sort of an accident. And so um, 
Alice being the the young enterprising girl that she was grabbed her and her younger sister Catherine and they jumped on the horse and went up to the woodcutter's hut and there they saw a man um they were all very drunk but he he'd um been cut with a broken beer bottle from uh his throat had been cut virtually from ear to ear what did Alice do well um I still find it hard to believe that she knew what to do, but she was just the, one of those girls that was very practical, and so she didn't hesitate. She said to her younger sister, boil up some water, pull um, a piece of um, uh, some hair from the horse, the horse's tail, and boil it up, and uh, one, of the, one of the men had a big needle, and so she just um, had the four men hold him down and she sewed up his neck. It's with just the, With the horse. <laughs> I did, know. Did he survive? He did survive, and, of course, he went to the doctor the next day and the doctor said she'd done a very good job. <laughs> Her dad, JT, was having various business ideas and plans while they were living out here in the bush. Mm. What shiny thing did he spy in a showroom window that he thought would be a perfect addition to his business plans? Mm, yes. Well, the very shiny thing was a, a Hutmobile Tourer. And Hutmobiles were made in America, a very swish car. And he'd just opened the Blackspur Motor Service, which he set up as a cooperative um, because it was just when um, motorised vehicles were coming into town and the big buses um, called Sharabanks in those days. Uh, there were horse-drawn versions, but um, at this point in time, we're talking around 1915, uh, they had the motorised versions. And so his idea was to set up this cooperative for people to, to um, be transported around but um, any excuse to pick up any shiny new object that came his way he thought oh for the for the the more upper class person that was prepared to pay a bit more they would love to go around you know these these <laughs> unmade roads covered in mud and uh, you know very dangerous roads they were uh, they might like to be in this beautiful tourer but of course he came back to there was because it was a cooperative, there was a board, and he, he immediately put a deposit on the on the car that was worth about three ordinary cars in those days, and they said, "No, we're not paying for that. That's that doesn't connect with the idea of the cooperative at all." And so he was stuck with this beautiful shiny car that he could only afford to pay. Well, he probably couldn't even afford the deposit. Really, they probably went without food for a month because of that. How did Alice? Anderson come to own this beautiful, huge car. Well, Hutmobile. in 1915, she happened to turn 18, and her her um, birthday was the 8th of June. Um, so she was a Gemini. I'm a Gemini as well. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, this is typical JT. He just handed her the keys and said, "Look, um, this is this is your 18th birthday." present and uh, yes there's there's um, about 450 pounds debt on the car so yes here's, here's your present and you're going to have to find some way to pay off the debt. <laughs> Could she drive at this point? No she couldn't drive and the car was absolutely enormous and she was a tiny little thing she was probably no more than it was well, she was four 
five foot three, which was about 155 centimetres or something. She was just a fraction taller than myself. And so I've got a photo of her sitting in this car and she's absolutely swamped by it. I mean, JT was over six foot tall and it probably suited him fine. But, uh, but you know, she, she was over the moon. She, she, yes. she was swamped by it, but she's grinning from, from ear to ear. Oh, absolutely. I mean, who would have thought, um, particularly when they were so poor, that she would ever end up with something like that. So how did she start turning it into a business venture? Like her dad had bought it with the idea to make money. It hadn't worked. How did Mm. Alice change things? Well, um, she'd studied bookkeeping uh, at school. And so uh, JT was looking for someone to run the office. And of course, um, Alice very quickly put her hand up. So she was the secretary of the Blackspur Motor Service. But she, she never stayed in the office for very long because she was wanting to be next door at the garage because she could hear all this tinkering going on and the roar of the engine and the smell of the petrol and the oil. And she was very excited by anything that made her move fast, really. I think she loved bicycles and horses and, and cars were the next thing. And, you know, being born in 1897 it was really the year that cars starting started to come out on the road so she was really born into that motoring era and saw the first cars on the road so so yes um she kept going next door and saying oh what are you doing here and what are you doing there and do you think you could teach me to drive and the the men were a bit thrown by this you know teenage diminutive teenage girl wanting to know about motoring and cars and mechanics and things and they said oh no we look we really think you shouldn't be driving around this area it's very dangerous and of course they were working on these giant buses as well and and she was wanting to learn how to drive a bus let alone her um her big hupmobile and so um they said well okay we'll we'll teach you to drive but not until you can um pull apart an engine and put it back together again and maybe they thought that was a deterrent but of course she did that in five seconds flat it's like next and I presume JT um, gave the go-ahead for her to learn how to drive which was um, the only thing he could do really by giving her a car that she had to pay off so yes they taught her how to drive she moved to Melbourne, bringing the hub with her when she was still a teenager, and she was working in an office job but started mm. running um, people out from Melbourne on, on picnics and day tripping. Did she mm. know much about the geography and the and Oh, she nature? knew a lot about the geography of the place and, and, see, a day trip from Melbourne, and she was working for the city of Caulfield, not far from where she was born in Malvern, um, and a, a day good day trip was to the Dandenongs and back, and um, that's not exactly where she grew up, but it's part of the Yarra Valley Ranges. And and um, if she didn't know something, she'd make it up anyway. So someone would say, oh, how high is that mountain? And she'd just make it up, and they wouldn't know any <laughs> better anyway. So she was, she was always very confident. <laughs> One day she was driving a, a group of day troopers out past Marysville, and they'd pulled over to enjoy the view when something happened to the road. Yes, yes. Well, um, it had been raining very heavily and they ended up at um, a waterfall. It was a lovely tourist area. And she pulled over and all of a sudden the, the side of the road collapsed and the the car was, the, there were two wheels that were hanging off the edge of a very steep cliff. <laughs> And of course, with all the passengers, with all the passengers, yes. (laughs) And of course, um, uh, Alice was was 
probably terribly nervous and she's certainly very frustrated that this had happened because she liked to be in control of things and she was she just blithely got out of the car and had people gently move it you know further towards the 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 more solid side of the car and just said oh this is nothing this happens all the time and she got out her brand sacks and and um you know sticks and things and levered levered everything up the um because she'd learned how to do that driving on the black spur. I mean, that's just what would happen in those days. But she was such a tiny little thing. It's amazing she could do all these things on her own and no one else knew what to do. So they they were just very white-faced while she managed to, to re- stabilise the car. Who came across her, Loretta, while she was rescuing <laughs> this troop of picnickers? Um, well, uh, it was as I said, it was a fairly um, popular tourist drive and, and there were a couple of women that, that happened to be passing along too. And one of them was Jessie Macbeth and her companion, I can't remember her companion's name now, but Kate, anyway, I think Kate Griffiths. Kate, that's right, Miss Griffiths, and uh, they happened to run um, Lancewood Hospital that happened to be in Glenferry Road, around the corner from where the garage was. But um, they hadn't met each other, and they didn't know that at the time. Um, so they were both nurses, and Jessie Macbeth was matron of the hospital, and. Um, they just stopped and thought, what on earth's going on? And they, being nurses, they wanted to get in and assist, but they, they just observed this young girl basically doing what she was doing and could see she was very capable and thought, well, if we get out and try and help, we're actually probably going to um, upset the apple cut, so to speak. So they just looked on um, in absolute astonishment at, at this young girl fixing this car up. The fact that she was even driving a car of that size astounded them, let alone taking tourists around and then um, stopping the car from falling down this giant cliff. What kind of relationship did Alice form with these two middle-aged women? Well, these two middle-aged women uh, were, um, it was the the worst held secret um, in Melbourne that they were a lesbian couple and um, they became very close with Alice. It was almost like um, Jessie Macbeth uh, was probably around 50 at the time and Alice was, you know, 19, maybe 20 at the most. And so um, she became like a mother figure to, to Alice, really. And because the the hospital was around the corner uh, and because her garage was a 24-7 garage, sometimes she just needed a break to get away uh, because she actually had a little um, room beside the office where she would sleep so that she didn't have to pay board and so she could keep an eye on the garage. And being young and enthusiastic, sometimes she only got three or four hours sleep. Um, so every now and again she'd, she'd pop round to um, Jessie Macbeth's Lancewood Hospital and they'd have a spare bed there for her and make sure that she had a good meal. So how old was, was Alice when she decided to chuck in the council job and try driving full time? Oh, gosh, so that would have been about 1917, so she would have been 20, 20 so. just 20, just turned 20. Mm. And when she began offering this motor service, the Miss Anderson motor service, what was it, first of all? What kind of jobs was she doing around Melbourne? Uh, well, she advertised that she was doing everything and her older sister, who was an artist, um, they both got together and her sister designed this business card and looking at it, you would think she had a fully serviced garage and had several cars and had, you know, she could fix anything, she could do anything and really she was just 
boarding at this little cottage, this little falling down cottage from that a Scottish woman owned that had a little broken down, um, you know, shed out the back. And that's where Alice worked from. And her car was probably just parked out the front. And yeah, so she, she made out, she, she didn't lie, but you looked at the, the business card and you would have thought she had a fully serviced garage. So she offered to do anything and everything to and do with cars. Who would she be driving around besides day trippers? Who else? would be using her services well she she tries to work in in Kew because that was where you know a lot of the upper crust live you know the the the, the wealthiest of Melbourne people lived there uh, and so she used to drive around that the Melbourne's elite and in those days if you owned a car and you were wealthy you didn't drive the car yourself you had a chauffeur or a chauffeuse if it was a woman so yes she she had a lot of clients that were you know, newspaper magnates and, um, you know, actors and solicitors and, uh, yeah, um, cheap farmers, wealthy wealthy graziers, what did, a whole lot. What did Alice wear when she was driving the great and the good of Melbourne around? Uh, she looked very smart in a chauffeur uniform that she put together herself and then when she started employing other women, um, they all wore the same uniform. And so she had, um, she looked a bit like a cross between a, a young woman horse rider and um, a World War I soldier. <laughs> so she had, the, she had the breeches, she had the boots and the gaiters, she had the shirt and tie and um, the, the driving coat and the, the peaked cap and the goggles and the um, driving gloves. Were there any other women in Australia doing this? No, absolutely not. Driving cars wasn't enough for Alice, though. What did she want to do besides driving? She wanted to become a, a fully qualified mechanic and run her own garage. She wanted the full garage. So that's what she did next. Was it hard to find someone to take her on? Absolutely, absolutely, because in those days the, the men could go to the working men's college and learn how to become a mechanic there, but that wasn't there for women. So she had to find someone to uh, apprentice her. is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Loretta, you were explaining how, in addition to acting as a chauffeur, Alice then learnt how to be a mechanic so that she could fix cars. And she also taught driving mm. early on to women of, of all ages or who did who came to learn yeah, with her? Yeah, women of all ages. She then decided that she wanted to move out of the little shed in the back of her landlady's house and build her own garage. Mm. Where did she raise the money? Well, that's a bit of a mystery because uh, her father was very happy to underwrite her, but the banks weren't happy with that at all because they saw that he really wasn't a safe bet in that respect. And uh, in those days, in fact, when I researched, I was quite shocked to realise that it was right up into the 1980s that women needed a, a man to underwrite any bank loan. I mean, it's not that long ago, but uh, I can't believe that 30 years ago that women still had to rely on men for that. 
And so once her father was out of the picture, uh, she decided not to tell anybody and not to involve family at all. So there were a few guesses that the family made, but really we'll never know. Who drew up the plans of the building that she wanted to create in Kew? Oh, Alice did, of course. (laughs) Who else? (laughs) And what did it look like? What did she design? Well, originally she wanted a three-storey garage and she she was a bit of a dreamer like her father. Uh, And, you know, this was during the war, so there weren't a lot of materials around. And uh, she wanted to have all the garage girls because she decided uh, in 1918 she was promoting that she'd only employ women. It was going to be an all-women enterprise and that all the the garage girls would live upstairs and, you know, have have this kind of collegiate um, connection with the garage garage and they'd all come downstairs to work. But it ended up being just a one-storey garage, but a very large one. And what kind of mechanical workshop did it include? Well, um, probably similar to other garages, although she made it a very big garage. It actually housed up to 22 cars permanently because, again, in those days, as I said, you had a chauffeur, if you were very wealthy, drive your own very expensive car, you know, like Rolls Royces that, that uh, you know, were velvet lined with, with crystal chandeliers and just unbelievable. And so, so uh, yeah, she, she housed those sort of cars and and uh, families would ring up and say, you know, oh, we're back from being overseas for two years, visiting the mother country or travelling through Europe, and now we're ready to have a chauffeur to take us wherever. So, yeah, it was a very large garage, but right at the back she had a lathe because in those days car manufacturers didn't build spare parts, so garages had to make their own spare parts. So she was doing that as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. So so she understood trigonometry and, yeah, she, well, being her father's daughter, I suppose, she, she had that sort of knowledge and, and she that was part of learning to be a mechanic in those days. Uh, she had a sewing machine because uh, right up into the mid-1920s, um, cars had cloth hoods and so she actually designed her own cloth hood called the Anderson Hood, funnily enough, um, and we don't know what that looked like. There's there's no picture of what it was, but um, that was very popular. And, uh, yeah, all sorts of um, bits and pieces that you'd need to, to fix any car. What kind of publicity was there, Loretta, around the opening of this all-girl garage? Well, Alice was very entrepreneurial and very enterprising, and so um, she she had an, a, an opening for the garage and uh, an at-home, if you like, at the garage because it was her home as well. She invited, you know, all the hoi polloi. And was covered in newspapers and, and magazines as well? Like, yes. Was she well-known? Yes, she was very well-known and she made sure she was well-known. So uh, she was a novelty and uh, we're looking at just post-World War One when young women had the freedom you know, between the two were wars, there was this incredible window where there was a lot of freedom for women and they were able to get away with, you know, dressing up um, and they could be boyish and young and uh, attractive and sporty and all those things that uh, women weren't meant to be um, earlier on. And for the first time in 500 years, women were cutting their hair short and it was revolutionary. It was the roaring 20s, even though Melbourne was, you know, the capital of Australia and terribly conservative, uh, the newspapers and the magazines really did push them as this amazing novelty, if you like. 
and women's magazines just uh, there was a whole plethora of them that came out post World War One because suddenly there was money around and people wanted to forget the war and all of a sudden um, it was fashionable for any woman to wear makeup whereas you know only ladies of the night or the stage wore makeup before then and clothing of course um, young women were encouraged to to drive cars it was all about money and uh, you know the 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 men had been off to war and a lot of them were, were injured in more ways than you know we can imagine really and so yeah a lot of the young women particularly the wealthy ones were driving cars and getting up in the latest motoring gear and the latest motoring hats and gloves and there was a whole fashion industry around it. How did she find women to work with her in the garage? Oh, well, they were lining up. They, really? You know, um, so she she had to find uh, someone that would apprentice her and it ended up being someone in Elizabeth Street in the city. Um, and so once she'd learnt to become a mechanic, all the young women that wanted to work and be independent and were interested in that sort of work and it was reasonably well paid and much more interesting than a lot of other jobs going. It wasn't well paid at the beginning but you could work up to it and so um, Alice was the place to go if you wanted to be a mechanic and you're a young woman. Looking at photos of Alice and the the girls who worked for her in the 1920s. Describe them for me. What do they look like? What do they the photos look like show? very modern women of today dressed up in gorgeous outfits <laughs> um, because a lot of the photos, they, they're from private albums and so it wasn't necessarily, they weren't posing for, for the public and so they were having a lot of fun. They were, they were smiling, they were laughing, they were having tea breaks, they were, you know, chatting away, they were giving each other hugs, they were playing around with the equipment, you know. Looking at those photos from this vantage point, Loretta, I mean, they look like images of queer women. Is there mm. anything known about Alice's sexuality? I can't prove either way whether she was um, a lesbian or not, although it's interesting going back to, to Mary, the, the elderly woman, uh, I'd take her out to lunch occasionally and, you know, get her to talk more about Alice Anderson if she could remember any other little tidbit. And one day she said oh, something about Alice being a lesbian and I hadn't mentioned anything to her and I said, oh, who told you that or what What makes you think that or did someone... And she said, well, I don't know, just everybody knew. So, you know, that's as close to the horse's mouth as you can get, I suppose, although she was a very young girl at the time. Various relatives of Alice, uh, some of them say Look, she probably was and others say she definitely wasn't and she um, dressed the way she did because of the work that she did. But uh, a lot of her clients were lesbian, a lot of her uh, garage girls were were lesbian and I know that because I interviewed relatives and uh, it's like Jessie Macbeth and her partner Kate Griffiths. I mean, that that's um, that's on the record more or less. So I would assume she was, but I cannot say definitely. It's part of that maybe slightly unknown history. Of, yeah, well, she was women. so young when she died too. She was very busy at the garage. I don't think she had time for any sort of relationship really. <laughs> she looked. She would have been quite a catch looking at those photos. Oh, I yeah, have to say, very cute. Imagine there were people vying. <laughs> for her attention. You've mentioned the Anderson hood that she invented. She invented other things as well, Loretta. Pray tell, what was the ratty waiter? 
The, the radiator was, again, this is just a description in a magazine. Uh, we don't have a picture of it, and she never patented this one. And I, I don't think it lasted for very long, but it's just one of her clever ideas that she could. She took a lot of people on tours with picnics and things. She decided she could attach some sort of um, uh, device to the engine that would heat up the, the tea or the coffee or whatever she was, hot water, whatever she was providing along with her picnic. So by the time they got to wherever they were going, there'd be a hot drink available. Like a little the thermos or something. A little thermosy thing with a tap, yeah. That sounds excellent. <laughs> do, do you know how it went? Did it work? Uh, well, it worked, yes, but I don't know why it didn't catch on. <laughs> Maybe it smelt a little bit of petrol or something well, by possibly, the time it got possibly. to it. Possibly, it had a bit of an aftertaste, you know. She also <laughs> had something called the get out and get under. And this was the big thing she invented, and if she had patented it worldwide, she would have made a lot of money. But she she only covered the patent for Australia, and an American businessman came in and saw what she had, which was, we're very familiar with it now. It was um, just a thing on coasters that she rolled under the car and did work on. And he took that idea away and went back to America and promoted it as the creeper and made an absolute fortune out of it. But she called it the get out and get under, probably because there was a song called he'd have to get out and get under to fix his automobile, which <laughs> which was a song at the time that was, um, you know, it, it was a very cheeky song um, with a lot of innuendo and it was about a, a gentleman that was trying to make love to his sweetheart and the car kept breaking down and he'd have to get out and get under to fix his automobile. <laughs> she worked on a British Stanley steamer in the garage too. I've never heard of steam cars. Mm. Why didn't they take off? They were amazing. They had very few moving parts and, uh, yeah, in terms of the environment, we'd be far better off if we were all going around um, driving steam cars. But, look, they took a long time to, to heat up. <laughs> so it'd take about 20 minutes before you... And they just didn't, you know, go the distance really. So if, yeah, but if, if they, they worked been... on that technology, I'm sure... And would they be quiet, I'm imagining, a steam car? Did they make well, a Well, they made a gentle hiss. <laughs> she was, one of her sisters, Claire, I think, worked for her yes. uh, in the garage and there was one job that Alice just handed her an encyclopedia and, and told her that's how to fix it up. I mean, yeah. how, tell me about that story, about Claire. Yes, yes. It's, um, it's still around the Dykes Automobile Encyclopedia and there were various volumes of it that covered almost every make of car, well, every make of car in those days. And, uh, yes, um, as usual, I think that this car had to be um, fixed up by the next morning and it was about two in the morning and it hadn't been done because other things had gotten in the way. And so um, Claire used to work there on weekends. Uh, she was actually the first um, female engineering student at Melbourne University so to make a bit of extra money she would work on the weekends at Alice's Garage and um, probably be, I don't know if she would have done this to one of the garage girls but being the younger sister she just threw her the Dykes Encyclopedia and said here, you'll find it all in here, can you fix this car up by the morning and so she spent all night working on it <laughs> and she managed to do it she was very proud of herself that she got it done in 1926, Alice makes a plan to drive to Alice Springs. Why did she want to go to Alice? Well, strangely enough, this was her idea of a holiday, <laughs> having a break, because she'd been um, running the garage for about nine years then and really 
hadn't had much of a break from it. I mean, she absolutely loved it, but, uh, you know, it must have been very exhausting work. So um, she decided to that she'd go to Alice Springs and she bought a 1926 baby Austin for that very purpose. And uh, it was the... It was the smallest car to be made um, from a production line in those days. And to travel to Alice Springs, where there were virtually no made roads in those days, and the centre of Australia and across the north as well, was still very, very remote. And it was known as the Never Never. And, uh, you know, it wasn't the safest thing to do. And so, um, yes, yeah, she got uh, a um, the Austin company and a local um, oil and motor company uh, motor oil company to um, petrol company to sponsor her to do this trip and who did she go with she went with um, a family friend Jessie Webb who was the first there's a lot of firsts in this book <laughs> who was the first um, history professor at Melbourne University in fact there's a building um, named after her at Melbourne University Jessie Webb um, who was about 17 years older than, than Alice at the time. Um, some people suggested that perhaps they were partners, but I suspect not. Uh, who knows? Anyway, um, yeah, they decided to do this intrepid trip together. And, and what record is there of what they experienced on the way up to Alice? Oh, they, they, they had all sorts of adventures um, and they they. Well, Alice, Alice um, often in those days you would just buy the engine and the chassis and you would get a um, uh, someone to build the actual body. Um, there were body builders. And so Alice built her own body with this um, baby Austin. And because they were taking so many supplies with them, she decided they didn't need doors at all. <laughs> and it didn't have boots in those days. It just had packing sacks that, you know, went along the running boards. And so there's photos of the car just, you know, you can hardly see the car for all the, the in packing sacks and the, the camping gear and <laughs> the shovel and the axe and whatever else they, they took. And um, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining Alice and Jessie driving off through throughout roads and without doors on their baby Austin. Yes. Did yes. they make it to Alice? They did make it to Alice, yes, um, which was amazing. And the only thing that happened was a f- one flat tyre, which was testament to Alice's driving as much as the um, the vehicle itself. Why didn't they drive back? Well, they were meant to drive back. It was meant to be a six-week tour, um, return tour. And uh Look, it's it's a bit hard to tell. I did discover a, a few letters that, that kind of um, answered a few questions that Alice had written to one of her friends. And um, I think Jessie, she was in her mid-40s at that stage and she'd done a lot of intrepid travelling herself, more so than, than um, Alice. But I think she just found it all a bit much. And the thing was to get to Alice Springs. That was the record. They broke the record. Well, they created the record. And so I think Jesse was like, I've had enough of this. I'm going back. And uh, so they, they went back as far as Udnadatta. And uh, then um, Alice, for some reason, decided she'd sell the car uh, to someone. And she didn't make a lot of money out of it. I think she sort of did something on a whim like her father would have. And uh, there was a friend actually coming up. Um, on the train to make the trip back with her was very shocked when she turned up at the train station at Udnadatta and was like, where's the car? Oh, (laughs) we're walking back? (laughs) We're taking the train? We're hiking? Okay. (laughs) 
She did make it back. She arrived in Melbourne on a Saturday in yes. September 1926. Yes. The next Friday, she was at the back of her workshop. Yes. What did the garage girls on duty that day say happened next? They heard a noise that they thought was um, a stone on the roof, um, but it was actually a gunshot going off and... Um, Alice was discovered in the back of the garage with a fatal wound to the head. When they discovered her, was she still alive? She was still alive and um, they called for a doctor and uh, one of the garage girls had to go and pick the doctor up. So you can imagine the mad rush to find the nearest car and, and thank goodness they didn't have to crank the engine up because cranks were still used in those days if the starter motor didn't work. So, yeah, rushed off down the road and brought the, the, the doctor back and um, she was still alive at that stage. She was still breathing, but um, it was clear that she was never going to recover and she was sent to, um, yeah, Jessie Macbeth's... Um, uh, hospital Her around the corner, hospital, yeah. Lancewood, mm. and died there at the hospital. Well, yeah, yeah. The coroner and the policeman came and pronounced her dead not long after. What kind of publicity did her death receive? She was on the front page of every major newspaper in Australia. Um, and when I discovered that, I thought, my goodness, you know, okay, it was 1926, but if this had been a man that had done all of these firsts, we would know about him. Why was she written out of the history books when she was such an extraordinary person and achieved so much? She was only 29 when she died. Only 29. Mm, so, so what had happened? I mean, you describe her learning to shoot when she was still a teenager out in the bush. She was really familiar with guns. She was very familiar what with did guns. The, what did the girls say had happened? Well, um, there was an inquest and the, the two girls uh, were interviewed along with others. There was a gun expert and there was the policeman that came and the doctor. They, they all uh, spoke at the inquest, but there were a lot of inconsistencies with the inquest and it, it, did, it took a lot of digging for me to actually work out what had happened because um, there's, there's been rumours up until the time I've worked it out that one, she committed suicide because she was so in debt and there were suggestions that there was a love gone wrong. There were all sorts of rumours and uh, she was the, the, some of the newspapers said uh, rightly so that she was cleaning. She, she'd um, borrowed a rifle and a shotgun to take away with her and her solicitor friend, Jeff Gare, uh, lent them to her and she was supposedly invited to go to dinner to the Gares to talk about the trip and return the guns and so she was cleaning those those guns when the accident happened. But interestingly enough, it wasn't either of those guns that caused the wound. It was her own gun. It was her own Do you think revolver. there's any validity in the suggestion that she might have taken her own life? Uh, well, that was certainly the strong rumour and uh, a lot of people suggested, even, even family members suggested that to me, or she committed suicide because it was discovered she was a lesbian. But none of that made sense to me and she was such an enthusiastic person and she had plans. You know, she'd, she'd taken people on tours throughout Victoria and interstate and she was planning um, in 1927 to take uh, a tour to Europe 
and she'd had people booked. And so... Um, she also wanted to become a pilot. Yeah, she'd just started to learn to take flying lessons and she had ideas about um, teaching other women to fly. So it just doesn't make sense to me that she'd commit suicide at 29, particularly in her garage uh, with two of her young garage girls around. It just doesn't make sense. Well, I'll say it's an accident and we'll let the details be <laughs> be unfolded. doesn't look like there was there was anybody else outside of the garage involved. Mm. What was her funeral like? Oh, a very, very sad affair. I, I cried writing it. It was just, it was just awful. Uh, there was such great sadness. Um, the funeral was actually at Burundara Cemetery where she's buried to this day. And um, I'm going to cry. We're talking about it. The garage girls um, that were working there at the time, and she always had about eight employed at the time. They were dressed up in their chauffeur uniforms, and they were the pallbearers. And uh, it was just a very, very sad day for everybody. And uh, there, there were so many people there. It was just the whole cemetery was crowded out. What happened to her garage after she died? Well, it kept going. Uh, I mean, certainly. The spark had gone, pardon the pun, once Alice had gone because she was young and entrepreneurial and uh, you just couldn't replace someone like Alice. But uh, there were so many women dedicated to her work and her memory. Ethel Beige ended up taking over the garage and keeping it going, even though it it, uh, wasn't really an ongoing concern because particularly by the Depression, uh, there were some all-women garages around the world, particularly in Britain, where, uh, you know, they were close to the the front lines in the war. None of them survived beyond the 20s. So, But Alice's garage kept going right up to World War II and and beyond, although after World War II um, it was co-owned by... A man. Is the building still there? No, unfortunately. It, it um, got knocked down in the 1950s and it was such a unique building and it was, um, very, it was very much praised by architects in her day. Yeah, but it was pulled down and replaced by Bib Stillwell's showroom and a lot of people that live locally or would drive up and down Cotham Road queue would remember and now um, there's no hint that any car had ever been there. It's part of Trinity Grammar What about campus. the name of her business, Miss Anderson's Motor Service? Did mm. that live on after she died? Yes, that the, the name only it kept going until the 1980s. There was still just around that area. There was Miss Anderson's Motor Service because once once Bib still would have took over, uh, there was still Miss Anderson's Motor School, and then there were two young women that ran that with the male boss around the corner from where the garage was. Maybe someone needs to to restart it and and build a building again, and you can open it, Loretta. <laughs> oh, that would be fabulous. <laughs> well, there is a recreation of her garage at the National Motor Museum in South Australia, so yeah. second best thing. Second I guess. best thing. Thank you for introducing me to this extraordinary woman. I have loved learning about her. Thanks, Loretta. Thank you. That was my conversation with Loretta Smith from 2019. Loretta's book is called A Spanner in the Works, The Extraordinary Story of Alice Anderson and Australia's First All-Girl Garage. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of conversations with Sarah Konoski. 
For more conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Carl. And we're the hosts of the kids' podcast, Short and Curly. Each of our episodes tackles a curly question about the world. Like, should we try and bring back extinct animals? Is it your fault if your room is messy? And is it ever okay to lie? Plus, we have a lot of fun along the way. Well, we make a lot of fun of you, Carl. Oh. It's a podcast to get the whole family thinking and talking. Short and curly. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.